This is The Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched-on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. Every now and again, I come across a story of human endeavor and perseverance that makes me stop on my tracks. The kind of story that makes you pause and take stock of how you're living your life, what you're taking for granted, what you're seeing as a huge problem or major inconvenience. Today, I'm excited to bring you that kind of story. The story that forces you to reboot your perspective and remember that any problem you think you have pales in comparison to what other people are having to deal with. Imagine getting up tomorrow and going off to work just as you do every day. Nothing different, everything the same. That is until everything changes and your world is turned upside down. That's exactly what happened to Jill Wheatley. You'll hear her incredible story in just a minute. I hope this interview with Jill reminds you of three things. Number one, regardless of what is happening to you and around you, you always have a choice of your perspective and the meaning you give things. Number two, the depth of the human spirit to face problems, endure pain, and rise again is absolutely limitless. So whatever problems you're navigating through right now, you must never forget that you can handle it and you will get through this. And number three, that our struggles are always given to us to help us grow and serve others. And it is our duty to take our pain and turn it into service. I hope you take away those three items and much more in our conversation with Jill today. And that it gives you just a small chance to pause and reflect on what you have and what you can be even more grateful for in your life that you have today. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Jill Wheatley. Jill was enjoying a life of travel and teaching until one fateful day in 2014 that would change her life forever. It started as a normal day, working as a health, sports science, and physical education teacher in Bavaria, Germany. Jill was, by accident, struck in the head by a student's line drive baseball, causing a cracked skull and severely traumatized brain that left her visually impaired with a life-threatening eating disorder and just days away from death. This put her on an intense roller coaster journey for more than two years in seven different hospitals across three countries. The fear, overwhelm, and anxiety of what was happening to her mind and body led Jill to deeply question the point of living. But through her countless dark nights of the soul, Jill was eventually able to see more light. With a change in perspective, living more from gratitude, and seeing new opportunities, Jill was able to find the inner strength she never believed she had, turning what she saw as the end of her life as she knew it into a celebration of the life she nearly lost. Jill is now embracing her new reality by running mountains around the world and capturing her adventures on her captivating blog at mountainsofmymind.com, where she shares her experience to create awareness of the seriousness of traumatic brain injury and to help others going through adversity to see light when they might only see the mountains in front of them. Jill, it's such a pleasure to spend time with you today. Welcome to The Ignition Show. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, first of all... You know, I just wanted to acknowledge you for being willing to be open with your story and your struggles. The more I dug into your incredible journey you've been on, the more I appreciated the power of you and your story possesses to really help others heal and keep moving forward despite of what they may be going through. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today and share with us. Absolute pleasure. Hmm. You know, to add a bit of starting context for the listeners, those who aren't familiar with your story, a couple of facts I just want to kind of lay down here. So you are born a Canadian, but traveled a fair amount in your youth. You were working in Germany when you had your accident. Now you currently are based in Kathmandu, Nepal. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And the past few years, your passion and perhaps your path to healing has been to run some of the most majestic mountain ranges in the world from 
South America, North America, Europe, Asia to South Pacific. Is that correct? That's correct. I think I'm in this part uh, since my accident, I think I'm in about 18 countries. But in total before that, I'm in the mid 60s now. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And with all that said, you have no vision in one eye and only 30% in the other, correct? Uh, actually, uh, total, I have about 30%. Um, so I have no vision on my right-hand side. And in my left eye, I have about 60 70%. So I can see clearly, but I can't move it properly. Right, um, so yeah, the, the only vision that I do have um, is so totally... Um, 30% and it only comes from my left eye. Got you. Got you. So, so many questions about how you, how you, how you got where you are and how you managed to, to travel the world and run these mountains. But first let's go back a little bit in time. What was, tell us a little bit more about you before your accident. Where were you living? What were you doing? Were you always a physically active person? Um, definitely always an active person. Um, I grew up in, as you mentioned, I'm Canadian. I was born in Northern Ontario, um, not long after, um, high school, I really got the, the bug to travel. I had gone out West and the, uh, Canadian Rockies really intrigued me. Um, however, I needed to, to get a job and to, to start working. So, uh, I started teaching. Um, actually I was very much inspired by my, uh, my ski coach in, uh, Sault Ste. Marie who um, just inspired me and, and thinking uh, led me to believe that you know if I could have an impact on, on students and, and other people sharing my passion for physical activity and the role of um, just a healthy lifestyle. Um, so I, I ended up teaching um, and, and moving overseas, so combining my love for teaching and travel at the same time, uh, working first in Singapore, uh, which was a great base, um, you know, not long after college, uh, for, for travel, for my career, I was able to do a master's degree while I was there as well. Um, but after Singapore, I moved to Russia and spent some time teaching between St. Petersburg and, and Moscow. And then after that, I was in Switzerland for a few years and then Germany. So I was teaching, like you said, I was teaching health and sports science and physical education um, just outside of Munich in Germany. So it sounds like you were, uh, I don't know if you would call it kind of living the dream, but you were certainly living in congruence with how you wanted to both experience the world and and help kids and help students kind of inspire them to live a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. I was very fortunate to be able to do something that I really enjoyed doing as a career. You know, I was able to to ski, which I was uh, I grew up doing, and cycling, skiing and cycling, and then a little bit of running. Any physical activity, basically. Um, you know, at the time of my accident, I was very active in the Swiss Alps and the. Um, and in, in Bavaria, where I was living, it was just very easy to be active. And, and yeah, I was really happy doing what I was doing. Yeah, I've, I've spent some time in Bavaria and I can appreciate and uh, maybe a bit envious of the opportunities to, uh, in that part of the world to easily jump in a car or get on your bike and uh, very quickly get to some just incredibly, uh, incredible vistas and a great way to challenge your, your body as well. Definitely, yeah. Mm. So, so... 
tell us about the, the what you remember about the day of your accident to kind of again further set the scene for for some of the conversation we want to get into. Sure. Um, I remember that morning because I had started it just like any other Wednesday morning and it was um, a bit gray and overcast. My my days at that time began early mornings with a run and then I would go back to my little flat. I was living on a farm and hop on my mountain bike and with my backpack and head off to school. And that morning there was an assembly at school and during the time of the assembly, some of my colleagues teaching phys ed decided to take their lessons that they had planned for outdoors and go indoors. But um, I prefer actually just to put on a good rain jacket or um, some waterproofs and, and keep keep moving outside. So I kept I kept my plan for the lesson and, and took my kid, my students, 10th grade physical education class outside and um, we had just done the warm-up and I'm just as active as the kids so we were um, you know running around we were warm and then we were just beginning the lesson and and it was the first day that students actually got to um, use bats in class so we were working on striking skills like um, basically how to connect the ball and the bat and um, we had broken off into groups three groups where we had like three stations and um, everyone was doing what they were supposed to do. And if I were to do anything again, I wouldn't change anything the way that I planned my lesson, the way the lesson was set up. Um, what happened next was a complete, complete accident. And there was certainly no, no intention whatsoever. Um, I can see that day like a hawk flying over the farmer's field that surrounded the, the sports field where I was teaching. Um, I can see it all happen. And it, it feels like I'm watching from a movie or a book. I remember the impact and falling with some sense of calm, yet knowing that there was something severely wrong and I needed students to get help because we were a bit of a distance from the school. Um, and then it's a, it's a quite some time of in and out from there being taken to hospital. I remember a doctor being very, very close in my face. Um, I remember trying to trying to answer his questions, trying to convince that I was okay, uh, knowing that there was something severely wrong. Um, I had signed up to compete in a race the, the weekend coming, so two days later I was supposed to be going back to Switzerland to compete in a, in a the world duathlon championships which is yeah. uh long distance cycling and and running combined um so i thought i there, there was no option of course i'm going to still go if i have a black eye i can i can still do this and wasn't that so how you were diagnosed as well that the that the doctors kind of sent you home saying it looks like a kind of a, a bad black eye but that's about it literally um and my friends that were my friends, colleagues that were with me remind me that, yes, it was a very um, quick, um, not so thorough examination. Again, I remember being on the bed. I remember it feeling like a, like a, a surgical room, but just in and out. And I was released with what I what I was told was a black eye. And were you in a lot of pain at that point or was it kind of one of those injuries where your body takes over and it kind of numbs everything? Uh, I would 
I would almost say that it is a, a combination. Like my head, I can't, the headache to articulate is very difficult, very difficult to articulate the pain in my head. Um, and the, the black eye, like my eye literally closed uh, immediately on impact and uh, swelled. And so, yeah, the, the pain in the head was, was indescribable. <laughs> Um, but I was, I was just the, the teacher. I was just the, you know, athlete sitting in the hospital with a black eye. So I was, had no, um, you know, no medical training to, to question what a doctor is telling me. Mm. So I, I believed him, but I, um, and yeah. so you went so, home after that and, um, the next 48 hours, things started just, I guess, turn for the worse or just got worse or what happened then? Yeah, it almost 48 hours of in and out, not um, not sure what actually happened other than I know I had I had tried to have a shower to thinking that that might make me feel better. I know I had no ice, so I was using berries from my freezer, which turned to a big mess. And and the bag that they were in, I was trying to vomit in um, and and I could not clean myself up. So yeah, two days of in and out of consciousness and um, until a friend came in and brought me right back to that hospital where I was uh, immediately put in an ambulance and taken to a trauma center, trauma, uh, trauma hospital. And how long were you there or what was kind of the next phase of what you had to experience? Um, so that was September 2014, and that hospital, I was in the neurointensive care for about four months. And then um, in that same hospital, most of 2015, I got to do some outpatient where I would, I actually got to go back to my room and sleep, but I would go to the hospital every single day for multiple therapies. Mm. Um, and obviously I cannot drive anymore. I lost the um, privilege to drive. And so, you know, I would have a, a taxi come and pick me up every morning and bring me back in the evening. And um, for pretty much a year before things, things changed, but they didn't change. Uh, my eye didn't improve. I was told um, initially that it would clear and once this swelling ceased that my eye would reopen. The focus turned quickly uh, to my brain when they realized that uh, I actually had not just a black eye, that my skull was fractured in multiple places and my brain was bleeding and swelling. So um, the focus stayed on my brain and with little attention given to my eye. Mm. It was like moving goalposts, pushing them back and pushing it back. Six weeks, you know, your eye, your eye will open, it will clear the healing, or I mean, the swelling will come down, and it just kept getting pushed. And so, how? Also, give us give us a flavor of. Um, you've kind of given us the protocol or the fact that you were going through therapy every day. How are you coping with this whole experience? This uncertainty both I guess emotionally mentally spiritually what were what were you experiencing at the time uh at that time um if you say dealing with it I don't I don't know if that would actually be an appropriate term there was definitely um you know I was nowhere even on the spectrum of stages of acceptance whatsoever 
Um, there was so much anger, frustration. I wanted answers. And what I didn't understand at the time is what every traumatic brain injury is so very different that there were no answers. And, and I couldn't, you know, I, I had no right to be to be angry with doctors who thought some, that the eye would clear or, um, you know, the diagnosis or what happened. I say that, however, um, when I mention anger, not for a second since the time of uh, my accident have I ever felt any anger towards anyone that was involved. And I say that because I do get the question of, you know, the student that, that hit the ball that hit you, that changed your life. Definitely um, no anger whatsoever. But yeah, the initial time in hospital uh, was really, really, um, a, it got very dark. Uh, I didn't want sympathy. I didn't want, I, in fact, I didn't want people around at all. Um, and part of that was the actual physical injury and the my sensitivity to noise, to stimulation, to light, um, any sounds, uh, brightness, uh, everything just seemed to compound my headaches and, or the, the, the headache, like the, um, the healing that was going on in, in my brain or attempt to heal was exhausting. And I actually never, never believed, uh, as an athlete, um, when a teacher or, or anyone would, would tell me that, um, uh, you know, if, if you've been studying, you need to take a study break because it's, you know, your brain gets tired. Well, a traumatic brain injury certainly did reinforce that lesson because the smallest things were absolutely exhausting and very slow transition into therapies. There's a reason for it. And at the time, I didn't believe it. You know, I just wanted to be done and out of hospital. But there's a reason the rehabilitation goes at a, at a pace that it does. But only now can I look back and realize and recognize that. Yeah, and it sounds like it's a textbook, um, you know, what happens to people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that that's the, the symptoms of detachment or personal avoidance really start to set in. And uh, yeah, it's very common. And as I, can, I can appreciate as also an athlete that what you're used to, you think you can always do. And yet very quickly, your, your brain and your body is giving you some strong signal, signals the other way. Absolutely. Yeah. And PTSD is something that I used to associate with war, with veterans. Um, however, I've, I've come to see it from a different angle and, and how the trauma has impacted me. Definitely. So you've got the, you've obviously got this, in, in, you know, intense symptoms that are happening for you. You've got the emotional kind of roller coaster and these waves of emotion that are coming over you this whole period of time. And another layer to add to it is that you were also incorrectly labeled as being anorexic. That is correct indeed. Um, so the area that affect the area of my brain that was injured also uh, is an area responsible responsible for appetite. Um, previously, I had as an athlete, as an active teacher, coach, um, I was very aware of of what I ate, what I you know, making sure that I ate enough uh, and properly to fuel the activity that I was doing. The accident. Um, absolutely. I feel that when the ball hit me, it was like it knocked my appetite right out of me. Part of those first 48 hours being so nauseous and vomiting, my appetite is not returned. 
Um, Still to this day? To this day, well, it's it's better than it was. Um, I spent seven months in eating disorder center to basically learning how to eat again. Uh, and an eating disorder is not something to be taken lightly. I, when I refer to it as eating school, I mean it with every respect um, because I literally was going to school to teach myself to eat again. There was nothing that c- could um, convince me that I actually needed to eat. Um, I had no, the, everything was, um, like the thought of food was nauseating and, um, and just put this yeah. into context again for, for the listener. So as a ballpark, even could you <clears throat> estimate like how many calories a day would you have been consuming if that's the right way of looking at it, but just to give us a rough feel for how much your, your intake really dropped. Yeah, you, when I was at my worst. Yeah. Um, anyone that's listening uh, that may be um, triggered by an eating disorder, I encourage you to maybe press pause or take a time out from this. Um, I was at my worst eating uh, less than a couple of hundred calories a day. Okay. And just again, for clarity, while you were, you were labeled as anorexic, Eventually, we were kind of skipping over a bunch, which will fill in the gaps a little bit, but eventually you were more accurately diagnosed with what's referred to as avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID. Yes. Um, so it actually is, there is actually a, a clinical name or identification for this, these symptoms and this, uh, what, what is probably not common but it is identifiable, especially with the kind of brain injury or the location of your brain injury that you had. Yes. And um, it took the, well, as you mentioned, the different hospitals and uh, I was eventually phoned to specialized care in Denver, Colorado. And that's where the um, eating disorder really got the care and attention that it needed. I know it's taken some time for you to open up and share some of the, the raw details and uh, about your journey, about your challenges, about the ups and downs. And you've had to embrace, if that's the right word, embrace being vulnerable, or it certainly felt like being very vulnerable and opening up the the kimono and everything you've been through. Again, when you look back on hindsight from now that you've been writing about this for a little while, what have you learned about being vulnerable? What what was your concern to begin with and what's your perspective now? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, It took me a long time to open up and to basically... Uh, it, part of that is is coming with acceptance, and um, I think that um, once I was convinced um, to to share my story, that uh, it just felt very freeing. And I'll just back up a little bit. When I was here in Nepal the first time in 2017, so when I first started traveling, and I um, was in very fortunate to be part of the Manaslu trail race, which is a stage race around the eighth highest mountain. And each morning, um, the group of runners or a, a certain uh, couple of runners would see me writing in my journal where I write about where I'm at, how I'm feeling, what I'm doing. Uh, and so with polite curiosity, we're asking, you know, what, what are you doing? It's so early in the morning and you're writing with a headlamp. What What's going on? And that, 
I guess the approach, um, I, I started to open up just a little bit and share about how I started to write and why I was writing and what I was writing about. And, um, and as I opened up, I guess maybe a little bit more each day and, and some questions came up in, in a very, very respectful way. Um, and I started to share one of the responses I got was, and I, I'll leave out the superlatives. <laughs> uh, you need to share this. And I, at that point, did not feel like there was anything to share. You know, I had no Olympic medal. I didn't have a World Cup. I had not reached the top of Everest. I was just doing what I felt um, I needed to do to get to a, a better place following following the hospitalization you know traveling in mountains and um and when the person who who said this sort of helped me understand where he was coming from and that you know if you share your story it might help someone else who is struggling to see light or to you know to find any hope and at that point i just i mold i just no, you know, I, I haven't done anything really special. But with, with some time and some long runs, um, again, the, the mountains of my mind, literally, uh, I take on the, on the trails and this is where I, I really feel at peace and with my, with my thoughts. Um, the mountains are my outlet where I untangle all of the, of who I am and, and what is this all about? What is this comment? What does he mean? And, and once I shifted that perspective to, you know what, if, if anyone was in a place, in a cave as dark as that which I was in, if I share my story and let them know about impermanence, about how they're not alone and that it's going to change and it can change, and if you shift your perspective, um, you know, there, there is going to be good. So once I made that transition and saw that if I share this story and I can help others to get to, to a better place, I'm all in. Mm. And so when I, I, I literally like did a 180 because no sharing or I'm sharing everything because I'm not going to pretend that life is just pretty mountain pictures, um, you know, blue sky and sunshine all of the time. Because here I am, it's 2020, and I am—I don't use the word recovery. Um, I use it with reluctance. I will never be the same person I was before. I don't want to be the same person I was before. You know, I've developed a, such a better perspective than I would have, you know, without. And from the high, you know, from the hurt and the lows that my traumatic brain injury has led me to, I have such a better perspective. So if I can share that and it using my blog and then starting to, you know, I've done a couple of magazine or a handful of magazine articles, podcasts. If I can share or when I share, I, I'm completely truthful, you know, breakfast Please, do, you know, do I have to eat this? Do I really need to eat? Well, yes, Jill, if you're going to go and ice climb all day, yes, you need to eat something. Or, you know, if you're going to run for six hours, you do need to take food and water with you, you know. So I, 
I'm sharing authentically because I, I really truly believe that it's not going to be helpful for anyone if I just pretend, you know, every, every day is sunshine and, and, and pretty mountains. Yeah. And so to piece the piece, the puzzles of the, of your journey together a little bit. So you were, as you said, four months in this trauma center, how, uh, then uh, how long were you in and out of hospital or in hospital in Germany? And then you moved to Canada to a different hospital in Canada and then eventually to the U S is that right? Yeah, that's right. So September, 2014 is when the accident happened and the, the hospital that I refer to, um, where the intensive care, I, so I stayed in that hospital those initial four months. And then within that same hospital, I was doing therapies, uh, the daily therapy throughout 2015. And I was on a, while I was on a wait list for a specialized neuro rehabilitation hospital in another part of Germany. And when I got in there, um, at the, in January, 2016, uh, by the time I was actually admitted, um, they refused to actually treat me for the, the brain, the neuro rehabilitation because I was so, um, uh, weak and unstable physically because my weight had dropped so low that they felt like my brain was in no place for a rehabilitation because I was too weak to to be part, to actively participate in any neuro rehabilitation. Yeah. The fundamentals weren't there for your body to That's learn right. in the new way. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on bed rest. Um, and I was not a very good patient, um, at all. I, I, you know, resisted treatment and, um, did not follow doctor's orders. Um, and what was that all about? What was the, was that just a, a, a fight inside of you? You, was it denial of the situation you were in? What was going on there? Uh, yeah, I would in, in reflection, it was, it was denial, but it was also the feeling of, of being misunderstood and, and really feeling like nobody, um, nobody understood or nobody knew what to do with me because I was this, I was a foreigner, um, I had a brain injury, I had vision loss, I had this eating thing going on, and I, all of which needs special attention and special care, special rehabilitation. However, there it's like you need to be at one hospital for eye treatment. You need to be at one hospital for brain treatment. You need to be at another hospital for, you know, to learn to eat again. However, such hospital doesn't exist. And so I just felt like I was being tossed between different doctors between different diagnoses I was put it getting these labels put on me and it just fueled my frustration um, the insurance company didn't know or did not support um, me leaving Germany for um, financial reasons and the you know especially at the neuro rehabilitation center there was very very little English and um, it took the basically the head of the hospital to say to um, to the insurance company that if you don't get her to um, the proper treatment, which doesn't exist in English in Germany, she's not going to survive. And that's when um, I was taken to, to a treatment center in Canada. Um, however, even then I was too far gone for what they could provide. And, um, 
and flown very soon thereafter to the specialized care in Colorado, where I spent um, seven months. So all in all, that was we're now looking at two years, uh, around two, two years. years of this of this yeah. saga con- continue to unfold, but also never knowing what is what's happening next, or if there is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> you wrote in one of your blogs that that your spirit didn't want modern technology or medication or artificial nutrition or reliance on others to keep that fire burning inside you. If you were meant to survive, it was becoming clear that you would have to stoke it enough to keep it alight. Do you remember the moment your perspective started to change where it went from what was an ending, but turned into a potential to have an adventure of self-discovery? Um, I still struggle to to feel that there is an exact turning or tipping point. Uh, I do remember in hospital in Denver, in times of anger, that with the vision that I do have, I could see out my hospital window, the Rockies, and shouting at my doctors uh, between throwing things and breaking things that I just wanted to be out of the hospital and I didn't say it in so many nice words uh, and be in those mountains. And I just wanted to be in the mountains to heal. Just leave me in the mountains and I'll be fine. So at that point, um, you know, I remember thinking the mountains and that's just where I want to be, just where I want to be. And then after getting out of finally getting out of hospital and not being certain what I wanted to do, somehow the analogy came together of my rehabilitation my recovery, what am I going to do? No mountain can be as tough as what I've been through. Mm. And so that's when um, the idea started to come together about traveling and about um, traveling in mountains and using using mountains as a recovery playground. <laughs> what is it about being up in the mountains that you find so therapeutic? I think it's the one one place where I can... Just the, the, the quietness, the peaceful, the na- nature, like my, um, you know, everything happens so, so slowly and it changes in the mountains. And, and I guess I can create somewhat of an analogy. An, an analogy. Um, you know, I once had a, a friend who was very passionate about uh, ultra running. And mm-hmm. I asked her once, is she running towards something or running away from something? If I asked, if I asked you the same question. You're running now around the world, up in the mountains. Are you running towards or are you running away? Or is it something different? No, I would say it's something different. Um, I'm running because it creates a sense of inner peace. Um, It's where I can um, be alone with my thoughts. And uh, it's it's where I feel like I can sort things out and where I actually have um, the most clear perspective and sort out yeah what's going on in my mind what has happened um yeah it's it's i i don't think i'm 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 not running away from anything i'm not i'm not running towards something i it's just where i can be in the present Mm -hmm. moment um i you know i try very hard to be mindful and i've i find that running and being in the mountains is where i can be most most present I, I totally get what you're saying about um, where you find that inner peace. It's uh, it's a you know beautiful beautiful place to be in the world. I'm I'm also uh, I, there's something special about being up in the mountains for me as well. And it is hard to articulate sometimes as to what exactly it is. 
but I think there's so many powerful lessons from what you've been through and what you're still going through, but what you're also learning along the way now that maybe your perspective has shifted. And you've talked in some of your blogs about you recognize that while you necessarily couldn't, you couldn't really control the undulating emotional waves that were coming mm-hmm. in the wake of your traumatic brain injury, but what you could let go of was the resistance and mm-hmm. use the good eye that you did have and the vision that you, the, the vision that you did have to see things from a new angle. Talk to us about what you learned about letting go of resistance and how do you go about seeing things from a new angle? Um, yeah, I, I think what I, I've really, um, I, I mentioned the word mindfulness and, and awareness and really embracing impermanence. Um, I think that's something that one of the many lessons I've learned from my TBI is how things change and the, the, the only certainty in life is change and that no matter how great it is, we're at, whether we're at the, you know, at the peak of a mountain, um, you know, in clear sky and sunshine, it's going to change. But it's also climbing that mountain and when you're at the, you know, the toughest park or part, um, you know, and, and for me that might be, or in, in running, it might be a very technical descent, which is very difficult for my eye. It's going to change. It's not going to be there forever. Um, my, you know, your, your good days, your bad days, um, you just try to embrace the moment because it's impermanent. It's going to change. Um, and that, that's the one, one certainty. You, you've gone from this, this depth of uncertainty to, for a lot of what you, you write about now and what you share now is that you really do, you, your mindset has completely shifted. Even though there are <laughs> physical challenges and life challenges, your mindset has yeah. completely shifted, seeing more, th- seeing things as opportunities, seeing the, yeah. the gratitude that you now have for the life that you do have. And you can understand, is there, are there certain practices, certainly if we got into the, the nitty gritty of it, are there certain practices that you have found very helpful or therapeutic or just keeps you on track from a mindset perspective as you continue to navigate life and navigate the mountains? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, part of my therapies in Denver, um, started to touch on, on mindfulness and meditation. And I, again, was so reluctant. Um, however, as time has gone on and with my running and with some connections that I've made, I have definitely had a new perspective. <laughs> I like to use the, the joke in eye opening, uh, with respect to meditation. Um, and I challenged myself, um, with Vipassana. I'm not sure if you're yep. familiar with, um, I, ten, 10 days of silence. Yes. 10 days of absolute silence, no talking, no communication, no eye contact, no interactions with, with people at all. Um, that is something that, uh, I feel so beneficial. Um, you know, I did my first 10 day sit. Um, in 2018. So when I was in Nepal, uh, yeah, meditation is a lot like, um, well, Vipassana specifically, I feel, uh, is, well, it's certainly not a retreat. It's a a sit where self work, it's a work, it's work and that self work. 
it translates, uh, ironically, uh, to clear seeing, like seeing things clearly. And um, it's it's a challenge, but I can create so many analogies. I'm not sure if you've read an, uh, a blog I wrote about the uh, similarities, what I feel between Vipassana and running and alter like the distances that I tend to run. Um, but it's Vipassana and just meditation itself has really helped me um, with a movement towards acceptance and letting go of, of the shoulds that I feel society often tends to put on, on people. Um, what were were the shoulds you you were putting on yourself? Well, that, you know, a, a should that I still struggle with is, well, I should be as fit or as fast or look like what I did before my accident, you know, and, and what life should look like the media today can be so cruel and and impact the way people think about what they should do when you know i feel i need i need to do to work on myself and and do what inspires me or keeps my heart happy and and inspired not because society tells me i should look a certain way or i should weigh a certain amount or i should eat a certain food um instead you know seeing things for myself if you you know reflect back on all the journey you've been through what do you think now about the depth of our human inner strength and our courage to move through challenges the the greatest limitations we put on ourselves i think from you know that's one thing that my accident has taught me um you know when i when i think of the losses or what I can't do, it does not serve me whatsoever. You know, I need to switch that around, change that perspective and um, let go of what I can't do and, and thrive on what I can't do. You know, it's up to me. To, it's up to me to say, this isn't how my story is going to end. You know, one, one bad chapter or a handful of bad chapters. Um, but I can, I can, you know, the, the book's not going to end here. So, Um, let's focus on what I can do, not what I can't do. It reminds me of, um, a gentleman I got introduced to years ago. I think his name was Art Berg, who, um, who also had, um, a serious accident. I believe he became a, uh, quadriplegic and he since passed away. Um, but years ago, his kind of perspective shifted and he, the way he articulated it was, I may not, there may be a thousand things that I can't do, but there are still 9,000 things that I can do. And it's a, it's a reminder to all of us when we're facing uh, challenges, let alone immense challenges, let alone physically immense challenges, that our physical body is one thing, but the, uh, the will of our mind, the will of our spirit is, is infinitely more vast. And I agree with you that all limitations that we do, um, that we put on ourselves, we, we, we put on ourselves. There is no limits mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. what we can think and what we can strive for. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other lessons that you've learned through your through this journey or through this this phase of your journey as you continue to embrace life in a different way? I've certainly learned, uh, like I mentioned about impermanence and how things change, because, you know, I uh, at the beginning of your show, you you alluded to, you know, I didn't think life was worth living. Uh, I had a visual impairment and a brain injury that affected 
every single day and I wasn't going to be able to do the things that I could do before. I couldn't hop in the car and put the skis in the back or put bikes on the roof and go to the mountains. I couldn't do those things. But once I moved to a place of acceptance and um, an awareness of impermanence that um, I, I've, I've you know, learned a lesson of, um, of, of change and how things can get better. Yes, they're, they're going to change. It's not, it may not always be for the better. However, they are going to change and, and just make the most of, of every moment. You talk a lot about uh, the role that gratitude or having more gratitude for what you do have has been important to you. Again, I'll ask uh, just in terms of the nitty gritty, do you have a specific uh, a practice of gratitude or is it is there something you actively do to connect to what you're grateful for? Um, I do. I have a uh, actually what started in the hospital uh, initially was a friend writing notes um, in the early days of Jill did this or the doctor said this today or she's got an appointment or she didn't eat anything today or, you know, basically what's happened, um, what's going to happen, what doctors, etc. little notes, which turned into um, me eventually taking over myself, you know, reminders, uh, which were tools sort of in therapy because of um, the memory issues that that came uh writing things down has has become a very helpful tool uh i say this because it's led to daily journaling each morning i begin with uh writing down you know thoughts reflective thoughts how i'm feeling what's going on uh where am i um well where i am like right now how long i've been traveling things like that uh and part of that includes gratitude you know, it's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a like a black and white gratitude journal, but especially times when I'm having some rough periods, you know, what, what am I really thankful for today? And writing that down certainly, um, I find helpful and, and just good reminders of, of, uh, all that I do have despite a little adversity. <laughs> <laughs> just to say the least. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's just so much, there is actually some great research out there now about the power of gratitude and, and uh, you know, the, the challenges and the hard times are always there and it's easy for the mind to look at those things and sometimes we forget that even in spite of the challenges we're going through, there's always something that we can reflect always. on that brings us more positivity or optimism or hope for the future or just a sense of that inner peace. Yes, yeah, yeah. So what's next for Jill? You're you're continuing to run. What is what is the what does the future have in store for Jill? Um, well, since my accident, I actually never use the word plan um, because life doesn't always go the way that um, we plan it. Um, instead, I use the word blueprint, and that and I use that term because it's a blueprint is an idea or um, you know perhaps an, an outline of what what might happen. Um, at this point, um, I am here in Nepal, uh, very happy to be here, um, in the Himalayas. I have, um, mixed up the, the last, um, actually about 10 months or so, um, six, eight, over the past year, um, I've really mixed up. So 
along with my running, I've started to do um, a little bit of climbing. I decided I wanted to try going a little bit higher than I had run before. And so I recently um, got up well over 6,000 meters and that um, not running at that altitude, but um, climbing and um, I'm very motivated and inspired to, to push that a little bit further this this year, hoping to get um, closer to 7,000 meters. I have become very involved in the Nepal climbing team and um, recently um, got myself to a height that I, again, never would have imagined. And that is I just um, came back from ice climbing in the Annapurnas. Uh, I hope to get back out um, very soon uh, before winter's over here. And, um, and, and ice climbing is a, again, something I never imagined doing, but also a sport that has taken me, uh, and my adrenaline to a height that, um, that running does something I, again, I, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's difficult to articulate, but, um, yeah, something I really enjoyed and want to do more of. So I will be here in Nepal, um, for a while yet. Uh, through the spring season at least. Um, summer, I will most likely um, spend some time in the Alps in between Switzerland and France and perhaps a quick stop in North America. And then I will be back in Nepal to finish this 2020 again. Hopefully um, that's where I will see 7,000 meters um, before the calendar flips for a new year well, but love, again just blueprints <laughs> yeah well i love uh, i love your ambitions to continue to challenge yourself and i'm yeah. sure that also in, in and of itself um giving yourself new challenges to something to strive for is also therapeutic men mentally spiritually emotionally to give you something to look forward to yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to build on that, Jill, if someone was listening to this and they were going through a seemingly insurmountable challenge, mm -hmm. struggle, life-altering, life-changing experience, I don't want to oversimplify it, but what would be one or two key pieces of advice that you could pass on to them as to what they should remember, what they could do in order to find that impermanence and to keep an open mind as to what the future has in store? That's a, another really good question. I think because we're all so different, you know, what inspires one person might not inspire another. However, just tuning into um, to, to resilience, um, and I'm certainly not saying that it's easy, um, but I alluded to before, you know, about imagining life as a book and it's full of chapters and, um, you know, th this time of, of adversity. And it might not, it's for, for your listeners, good chance it's not a brain injury, but every human, that's what connects us. We all, you know, we all uh, have a connection to adversity, whether it's going through, um, you know, the, the illness of a loved one or a relationship problem or some, some other kind of loss or um, struggles in a career, different types of adversity. Um, every, you know, every human can connect to it. Um, but saying, you know, this chapter does not mean, you know, my books, my story is not going to end right here. And we have the power, you know, to, to make our own magic. And um, like I said before, 
you know, not limiting our, ourselves, um, you know, because of, of one bad time or one bad situation. Um, I think your, uh, your comment that you said a couple of times is that, that this is not how the story is going to end. I think is a really powerful one. And I think that can really be a grounding reminder for people that not only do they, uh, do they have some choice in the matter, but they also have a depth of strength and resilience and courage far greater than they might be imagining right now. And I think you are a shining example of someone who, who demonstrates what the human spirit is capable of. And I just want to, again, thank you for sharing your story with us today, but also on your blog. Before I ask the final question, where could people learn more about you or get in touch with you? I would be more than happy um, to speak, to communicate with anyone who might find any connection to my story whatsoever. Um, my blog is uh, mountainsofmymind.com. Um, as well, there is a Facebook page that goes with it. Um, and it is mountain of my mind. So just add mountains of my mind. Um, Instagram as well, uh, MTNS of my mind. And Twitter as well, same thing, MTNS of my mind, Mountains of my mind, short form. Um, but again, uh, social media, I try, I, uh, that was another uh, point of reluctance for me because I, I struggle with it in many ways. However, do feel that, again, if I can connect with people um, using social media then, and find the benefits of it, uh, when there are pretty mountain pictures, I do try to, um, and I do hope readers <laughs> do read the captions because I do often make analogies, you know, uh, to the mountains and how I'm feeling, whether it be a tough climb um, and, and perspective, you know, whether those, that range of mountains ahead when there's endless, when you can count the endless mountains, you could see them as challenges as in um, life's mountains are too much. They just go on and on and on. Or you could see those mountains as possibilities and, and bring you to, um, new places that you may have never imagined or thought possible in my case. Well, we'll be sure to include all those links in our show notes. And I do encourage anyone who's connected with Jill and some of the, the messages and lessons that Jill has experienced and shared with us that you really do check out her blog because it's, there are some, uh, not only is it very powerful, it's also very well written and it's, um, it's very raw on what it's like to, uh, to, to face challenges and to work through adversities. So Jill, a final question for your time on the Ignition Show. What do you hope to ignite in the world? I hope that I could ignite the awareness that I have learned, um, awareness of impermanence, awareness of resilience, and taking the opportunity um, to make meaning of our own lives and the way that, for, for me, sharing with you today, the impact that it could have on others. What makes life meaningful is... The, the impact we have on others. And so I hope by sharing today that this can bring some light to your listeners and anyone struggling um, to find their own light today. I think that's a great note to wrap up on. And Jill, I do really, really appreciate your time, your sharing and for being as open as you are. Uh, I do know that this will have an impact on others. So thank you very much, Jill. I look forward to following your journeys on your blog and um, hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. That was Jill Wheatley, mountain runner, traumatic brain injury survivor, and blogger at mountainsofmymind.com. You can find all the links in our show notes. 
We want you to get the most of the time you've invested listening here. The show is only valuable if you apply what you learned, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect and let us know what struck you. And what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments and follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, it's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, Whatever you hope for and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.